Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. The myth of happiness, psychologist reveals secrets of a content life. A psychologist has dispelled some of the common misconceptions about what it takes to be happy, and how to enhance your well-being by harnessing positive thinking and relationships. Dr. Sue Roffey, who is based in the UK, co-wrote book Creating the World We Want to Live In, about how positive psychology can be a far more effective way of achieving happiness than money or success. Sharing her advice on finding contentment with female, she said that decades' worth of research confirm that it is possible to live a fulfilled life, but that having the perfect body or the latest designer goods isn't the way to do it. She revealed how healthy relationships, based on support and communication rather than looks, and valuing meaning and purpose over financial gain can have a positive impact on your life. We all listen to messages saying that if we have the best and latest of something, get a gold medal or a asterisk exam results, win the lottery, become famous or look like a film star then happiness will follow as surely as day follows night, said Sue. Of course, at the time we achieve glory or that new car we are likely to be ecstatic and want to treasure those moments. Who wouldn't? But none of them last. The unique case of the blue man. He serves as a warning to all of us not to experiment with our bodies. In 2008, Paul Carrison came on the Oprah show and the entire world got to meet the blue man. Whereas the first shock was seeing him, the second one came when Mr. Carrison revealed that he was the one responsible for his blue skin due to experimenting with a common home remedy. Paul was born as a light-skinned man with strawberry blonde hair. He lived a normal life and could walk down the street completely unnoticed. All of that changed in 1994. It started when he saw an ad in a magazine for a colloidal silver generator. The device was advertised as taking a withered daisy, putting it in a glass of coil silver and after some time the flower ended up looking freshly cut. During that time Paul was also hearing that colloidal silver was useful for treating petroleum poisoning, a condition from which his friend suffered from working in a machine shop since the age of seven. He ordered the generator and went to his friend's shop every day. There, they would each make a glass of colloidal silver and drink it. In his interview with Oprah, Paul said that even though he himself was not suffering from petroleum poisoning, he was not about to give it just to his friend. The kindest thing to do was to drink it with him, and it was after all great stuff. In no time Paul started noticing the positive effects. He had a problem with acid reflux and in less than three days of taking the home remedy, it was gone. So he kept drinking it, a 10-ounce tumbler of it every single day. He justified the amount to himself by saying it wasn't very strong. But still, Paul didn't turn blue from drinking colloidal silver. It was when he started applying it to his skin when the unwanted changes started happening. Carrison was the sole caretaker of both of his parents who had strokes and were very ill. It was apparent that his father was going to die soon and the stress made Paul develop an intense case of dermatitis. 
Since he dabbed colloidal silver on cat scratches before and the effect was remarkable, he started to put it on his dry skin too. That is when his skin began turning blue. The change was very gradual and started happening after two to three months of consistently applying it. In fact, it was so gradual that nobody noticed it. Paul was already not getting out much since he was caring for his parents and only went out for groceries. Then a friend who had not seen him in a while came to visit and asked him what he had on his face. Paul didn't know what he was talking about so they went in front of a mirror and stood next to each other. It was then that Carison saw what had happened to him. But by that point, the damage had already been done. The clarification for Paul's case came in 2008 when Dr. Oz explained how when you put silver in water it is bad for bacteria because it prevents them from making energy, but it does the same to our cells. The silver, the blue color, got into Paul's cells and the same thing happened to him as when you put silver in a photographic plate, expose it to sunlight and it turns into color. Paul basically tattooed his entire body with silver and was through and though blue not just on the surface. The condition is called Argyria. After appearing on Oprah, Paul gained fame overnight. He became an internet sensation under the name, Papa Smurf, and all the major media outlets wanted to do a story on him. In an Inside Edition 2008 interview, Carrison surprised everyone when he said, I'm not sure, when asked if he would change back to the way he was. What was perhaps more shocking is that Paul continued to drink the colloidal silver solution even after turning blue and demonstrated how he makes it on camera. His fiancée drank the concoction too. But Paul's luck changed. When the Inside Edition team caught up with him in 2012 he had lost his home and moved into a homeless shelter. He battled with prostate cancer, heart problems, and broke up with his fiancée. People are rather reluctant to hire blue people or people who are noticeably different, Carrison said when talking about why nobody would give him a job. So he packed his belongings and moved from Madeira, CA, back to his hometown Bellingham, WA. There he reconnected with Joanne Elkins who he knew from junior high and they started dating. Later they moved in together, but it was not to last. Paul Carrison was 62 years old when he died from the consequences of a heart attack on September 23, 2013, at a Washington hospital. He went down in medical history as the blue man. After Afghanistan, Britain can no longer pretend to punch above its weight. After humiliation, here ends hubris and surely the global Britain delusion. No more fatuous boasting, no more world-beating and world-leading, but time for an honest audit of who we are, what we can do, and what we plainly can't. Hold below the waterline, Britain has done itself incalculable reputational damage in recent years. Rescuing Afghan dogs and cats may stand as a global emblem of barking mad Britain.
John Casson, a recent ambassador to Egypt, sorrowfully tweets his lifetime foreign office goals, leading in the EU, freeing young Arabs from authoritarians, being impactful not transactional in development, and leaving Afghanistan in good shape. All these have failed. Post-Afghanistan, the government's recent integrated review of defense and foreign policy rings hollow, tilt to the Gulf, tilt to the Pacific, step up in Africa, lead NATO in Europe, tread carefully with Xi and stand up to Putin, spend, spend, spend on extra nuclear warheads, with no tough choices. Even with the Ministry of Defence's indefensible £16 billion budget increase, Britain can't keep pretending to punch above our weight. Here's the question, what is the UK's correct weight? Forget counting it in punches, try measuring cleverer things. We know what we're bad at, all those familiar British follies and failings, so weigh up what we're genuinely good at. Calling it soft power doesn't reprise imperial delusions by other means. Every country has soft power in its own sphere. Good governments nurture those assets, but ours perversely does the opposite. That springs from its brutish culture war politics, expressed mostly as a war on culture. Why devour Britain's best icons? The BBC, its funding cut by 30% since 2010, is under severe threat, even though it's not only the UK's but also America's most trusted news brand. How precious an asset is that? Channel 4, our other public broadcaster, is up for privatisation, being sold for peanuts. When it no longer invests all profits back into programs, its loss will kill independent producers, the lifeblood of much UK creativity, just to avenge its impudence to government. Why sell it? If you're concerned, you have only until 14 September to respond to the Culture Department's brief public consultation. Vandal Chancellor George Osborne's first act in 2010 was to slash the Arts Council England budget by a third and museums' budgets by 15%. Now rewarded with the chairmanship of the British Museum he might, wandering its halls, ponder how a country is its culture, and all that's left of civilizations when we're all dead. The British Council, a global ambassador for our culture, language and history, encourages foreign students to come to the UK, but now it barely survives, it is expected to cut 2,000 posts and exit 20 countries. Yet its experts understand the subtleties of international influence, as its report on global perceptions of the UK concluded, where governments seek to instrumentalise soft power they end up detracting from the attractiveness and trust that assets, like arts and educational institutions, generate. It advises that governments should nurture these assets, but then, get out of the way. Nurturing is not happening in schools, with heavy cuts to music, arts and drama, nor in university arts departments which are to be cut by 50%, killing the seed corn of future creativity. The culture war assault on universities is inexplicable, complaining that we have too many graduates instead of boasting that four British universities feature in the global top ten. 
That's why, astonishingly, a quarter, yes, a quarter, of all the world's leaders have been educated in Britain, an influence of incalculable value. Scientific research, especially Britain's first-rate biotech, is being backed by the government, though the UK still spends less on research and development than the OECD average. Vaccines and medicines are the ultimate soft power. The quality of national influence is intangible, ineffable, unmeasurable. Some countries gain admiration for their spirit of generosity, such as Germany over migration. How bizarre to hear the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, last week disingenuously call Britain a big-hearted nation, even as his next breath breathed fire against migrants, even as his Foreign Office oversees devastating aid cuts mid-project that will pull away 85% from family planning funds, 60% from UNICEF and 42% from help for the Rohingya. Influence can spring from good example. But Boris Johnson will struggle to lead at the forthcoming COP26 climate talks if he's opening a coal mine, drilling new North Sea oil fields, delaying an end to gas boilers and failing to install electric car charging points. Leading by example, is a lost cause for Britain under a leader widely disrespected abroad. If there once was a time, no doubt exaggerated, when bowler-hatted Whitehall was an emblem of the rule of law, civil service and uncorrupt democracy, that's blown away by culture war attacks on judicial review and the judiciary, the former Daily Mail editor Paul Dacre, who called judges, enemies of the people, may yet head off com. Tory attacks on the Electoral Commission will restrict its power to challenge increasingly corrupt political donations. Chums and cronies appointed to every quango will now be overseen by arch-crony William Shawcross as Commissioner of Public Appointments. As head of the Charity Commission, he was accused of gagging charities into political silence. Charities, once a British pride, are out of favour, with the latest right-wing targets including the National Trust, Barnardo's, and even the sacred Royal National Lifeboat Institution. Football is another thing Britain does well. In Yangon, Myanmar, a taxi driver immediately asked me which Premier League team I supported, a common experience for Britons abroad. But again, where's the seed corn when 710 council football pitches have been lost since 2010? The Johnson government is a bunch of global Millwall fans, chanting, no one likes us, we don't care, at all our neighbours. Deserted by the US, that Tory fantasy of Britain as a transatlantic bridge, is broken at both ends. The puzzle is why it despises and diminishes most of the things that can earn back respect. British soft power doesn't need to vaunt and boast nor be world-beating, just be good enough, in the hope that it can repair the damage. Soft power spreads things most likely to make people happy, but the UK just fell from 13th to 18th place in this year's UN World Happiness Report. Poor Afghanistan came last, and that was measured before the Taliban's return to power. 
Like Aesop's fable of the contest between the sun and the wind, we could have done better in Afghanistan if all the firepower blasted on invasion had been spent on shining down soft power instead. If that sounds sentimental in a land of terror, just remember that the Western expedition could hardly have fared any worse in its contradictory mission, hard and soft, to break and nation-build simultaneously. Diana fans remember Princess on 24th anniversary of her death. 24 years have passed since Diana Princess of Wales died in a Paris car crash. The Princess, the Duke of Cambridge and the Duke of Sussex's late mother, was just 36 when she was killed on August 31, 1997. Nearly a quarter of a century on from Diana's shock death, the statue commissioned by William and Harry, whose rift has now been long documented, was finally unveiled last month. Well-wishers are able to view the statue at Kensington Palace on Tuesday after historic royal palaces made special arrangements to allow visitors access to the cradle walk around the sunken garden between 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. for the anniversary. Due to the pandemic, the area is only usually accessible to the public from Wednesdays to Sundays. William, the Duchess of Cambridge and the three children, Prince George, Princess Charlotte and Prince Louis, are understood to be commemorating the anniversary privately. Devoted fans of Diana make a pilgrimage to leave flowers and messages at the ornate golden gates of her former London home each year. Nicknamed the People's Princess for her caring, open approach, Diana was known for her devotion to William and Harry, the breakdown of her marriage to the Prince of Wales, her personal struggles, and her humanitarian charity work. 2021 saw the BBC write to the royal family to apologise for the circumstances surrounding Diana's famous Panorama interview in 1995. The Princess Brother Earl Spencer said he draws a line between the bombshell television appearance and her death two years later. An inquiry found the BBC covered up deceitful behaviour, used by journalist Martin Bashir to secure his headline-making world exclusive and that he faked bank statements. The programme, in which Diana said there were three of us in her marriage and questioned Charles's suitability as king, prompted the Queen to urge the Waleses to divorce. William condemned the BBC in a statement saying the interview had fueled his mother's fear, paranoia and isolation in the final years of her life and damaged her relationship with the Prince of Wales. Harry also hit out at the corporation, saying, the ripple effect of a culture of exploitation and unethical practices ultimately took her life. The princess and lover Dodie Fayed were killed when their Mercedes crashed in the Pont de l'Alma tunnel in Paris as they were being pursued by the paparazzi. Mr. Fayed's chauffeur Henry Paul was drunk and driving too fast. William was 15 years old and Harry 12 at the time, and the brothers faced the harrowing task of walking through the streets of central London behind Diana's funeral cortege in front of crowds of mourners. 
More than two decades on, the pair have a troubled relationship, with Harry, now living with the Duchess of Sussex in California, describing it is as space. Their rift stretches back to before Harry and Meghan's wedding, when Harry was apparently angered by what he perceived as his brother's, snobbish, attitude to Meghan, after William questioned whether he should rush into things with the ex-Suits star. The Sussexes later accused the royal family of racism in their Oprah interview and the institution of not helping Meghan when she had suicidal thoughts. William was said to have been left, furious, that private family matters were brought into the public domain. The anniversary this year coincides with the paperback release of the unauthorized biography Finding Freedom. The book, in a new epilogue, said, among other claims, that several members of the royal family were understood to have been quietly pleased that Meghan stayed away from the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral because they didn't want a circus. Harry is set to publish his memoirs in 2022 which will also be the 25th anniversary of Diana's death and the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, with the Windsors braced as he vows to write an accurate and wholly truthful account of his life. Feeding birds in our gardens is a joy, but it may be harming weaker species. Feeding birds is hard-wired into our national psyche. The apocryphal Victorian tuppence a bag for seed for the Trafalgar Square pigeons has morphed into a national pastime, with an estimated 17 metres household spending £250 million a year on more than 150,000 tonnes of bird feed, enough to feed the entire breeding population of the ten most common feeder using bird species year-round three times over. The habit has been enthusiastically encouraged by environmental NGOs, which recognize it as a way for people to connect with nature. This was brought into sharp relief during the pandemic, with many of us discovering the joy of attracting birds to our own gardens after losing access to wildlife and wild spaces. So we know that bird feeding can be good for humans, but what about for birds? Human-provided food is now such an important part of the diets of some species that it can provide up to 75% of the daily intake, and with an average of 100 bird feeders per square kilometre across the UK, most birds don't have to travel far to find one. Unsurprisingly, some species have become habitual feeder users, relying on the unlimited year-long supply of food, and these populations have boomed. The UK has gained 700,000 additional pairs of great tits in the past 25 years, a 40% population increase. Blue tits, nuthatches and great spotted woodpeckers have never had it so good. These species have something else in common though, they are all dominant species that can monopolize resources such as food and nesting sites. But out in the wider countryside, fortunes for many woodland species are less rosy. Marsh and willow tits, lesser spotted woodpeckers, several migrant flycatchers and warblers have been slowly disappearing from the British landscape since the 1970s, as one woodland area after another has lost cherished members of its dawn chorus choir. 
Ornithologists have been left scratching their heads as to why these species are failing. Many of the species in decline are subordinate species, lower in the natural pecking order, if you'll excuse the pun. Forced to develop strategies to survive, they have become more innovative and have diversified the ways they interact with the landscape. Unlike blue and grey tits, the drabber and less obtrusive willow tits excavate their own nest holes, meaning they don't have to wait until a natural cavity forms, which a more dominant species would probably take. This means they can occupy new sites, like young woodlands, which are unsuitable for their more imposing relatives. Similarly, the marsh tit collects and catches food and stores it for a rainy day, or a harsh winter. It is faster to find new food resources and has a stronger bill to deal with harder food items. But these fancy tactics are rendered null and void by bird feeders providing food 24-7, it is gobbled up by the dominant species, sending their numbers up, and increasing the threat to subordinate species. The biggest cause of nest failure for willow tits is having their nest hole stolen by blue tits. This has tragic effects. The subordinate willow tit is now extinct across most of southern Britain, and is likely to disappear completely from its former natural habitats. Spare a thought, too, for the pied flycatchers, arriving back from Africa to ever more unpredictable spring weather in the UK to compete with species such as great tits for food and nests. Great tits sometimes kill flycatchers in scuffles over nest sites. Nature would favor these long-distance migrants by every so often delivering a hammer blow to resident species in the form of a harsh winter. Increased mortality among dominant resident species would leave the woods quieter for returning migrants, while potentially favoring the subordinate residents, which had stockpiled food or were better at finding it. However, bird feeding leaves the dominant species holding all the resource cards, no matter how bad a winter they've had to endure. Beyond this between species competition, there is also the specter of disease. By feeding diverse species at the same place at the same time for years on end, with no social distancing, we create unnatural aggregations and fertile conditions for diseases to spread within species, and worse, from one species to another. This happened in spectacular fashion in 2005 when the protozoan parasite Trichomonas gallinae jumped from feeder using wood pigeons to finches. As a direct result the greenfinch population declined by 66% a year 280,000 birds, between 2006 and 2016. We were told to wash feeders more often, but now chaffinches are declining rapidly too owing to trichomonas and papillomavirus infections, again transmitted around provisioned food. This poses a conundrum. For declining species of farmland birds such as tree sparrows, bird feeders represent a lifeline in an increasingly sterile farmed environment. Likewise, it seems possible that populations of house sparrows and starlings in some cities would fail if handouts ceased. 
And yet, in many areas, feeding blue and great tits may be the nail in the coffin for their scarcer relatives. We stand witness to the biodiversity crisis. In good faith, we have tried to help wildlife. We badly need a better understanding of the consequences of bird feeding and, armed with this information, there is one clear piece of advice we can give for those concerned with bird populations. Where possible, improving habitat amount and quality in our gardens is a vastly more important gift to nature than any bird seed handouts. This is readily achievable by a range of methods. We can plant beneficial native plants that provide seasonal bursts of resources, from nuts, to berries and caterpillars, we can dig ponds, swap fences for hedgerows, or choose rambunctious wildflower-covered lawns over paved surfaces. Or we can passively rewild parts of our gardens, and let nature run the show. Dr. Alexander Seelys is Senior Lecturer in Conservation Biology at Manchester Metropolitan University. He co-authored the piece with Dr. Jack Shutt, Research Associate in Conservation Ecology at Manchester Metropolitan University. We have a small favour to ask. Tens of millions have placed their trust in The Guardian's high-impact journalism since we started publishing 200 years ago, turning to us in moments of crisis, uncertainty, solidarity and hope. More than 1.5 million readers, from 180 countries, have recently taken the step to support us financially, keeping us open to all, and fiercely independent. With no shareholders or billionaire owner, we can set our own agenda and provide trustworthy journalism that's free from commercial and political influence, offering a counterweight to the spread of misinformation. When it's never mattered more, we can investigate and challenge without fear or favor. Unlike many others, Guardian journalism is available for everyone to read, regardless of what they can afford to pay. We do this because we believe in information equality. Greater numbers of people can keep track of global events, understand their impact on people and communities, and become inspired to take meaningful action. While I agree with the analysis and explanations provided by Dr. Alexander C. Lees, it yet again places some responsibility for the decline in species diversity on the shoulders of well-meaning households feeding birds in the gardens. Surely the elephant in the garden is the agricultural system in Britain, which has resulted in the removal of hedges and the concomitant loss of nesting sites, for example. It is disappointing that this contributory factor was not mentioned. I will continue to feed the birds in my urban garden and enjoy the many varieties that use the feeders. Alison Powell says, We are asking for your support. You can make your donations on our website www.misty101.com on podcast page. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.